if the best guy, the most talented guy who could make it just on their talent has the work ethic of someone with no talent, that's scary. And that's Prince. And that's Michael Jackson. If you're a person who's heard the word no from a boss, an ex, a team that cut you, a job market that didn't want you, an accident or diagnosis that left you debilitated and depressed, or felt paralyzed by any setback that you just weren't willing to accept, this is the show for you. 10,000 No's is a roadmap built by guests who have blazed trails, silenced critics, and overcome the odds by facing down their fears and transforming their failures into fuel. I don't care if you're young or old, healthy or sick, there is always an opportunity for growth. This is Matthew Del Negro, and you're listening to 10,000 No's. Welcome back. Thank you, as always, for being here. I am super excited about today's episode. I had the great honor of sitting down with Jimmy Jam, who is a music industry legend. This man has spoken to the UN. He's worked with Prince, Michael Jackson, Janet Jackson. We've got stories about all of them. He's got multiple Grammys, platinum albums. He's got a star on the Hollywood Boulevard Walk of Fame with his producing partner, Terry Lewis. Um, I'm not going to list all of his accolades here because it would just take too long to get through it. We have links in our show notes, so check those out and you can see just how distinguished Jimmy Jam is. Um, I had a really hard time with how I wanted to present this episode for you guys because we sat down. I was not expecting, it was really tough to get this interview and a shout out to my friend, Johnny Slow, who introduced Jimmy to 10,000 No's. He played him the uh, Mark Duplass episode. Jimmy really liked it and said, yes, I'll do that, which is really flattering to me to have someone of, of this ilk uh, be willing to sit down with me. And I was not expecting, it took a while to line it up and I thought, okay, I'm going to have to get in and get out and I'm going to get my questions. I have it all planned out. And he was just so open and so loose as you're going to hear. And the interview didn't even start and it started. He just started dropping, you know, pearls of wisdom. And so I kind of let him go. And really it's probably 40 minutes into it before we started getting to Jimmy's origin story, but the stories that are told just in, in such a nonchalant way in the first 40 minutes alone, you know, he's talking about Michael Jackson, he's being in the booth and he's talking about, you know, playing with Prince and working with Prince. And he has a great story about how he and Terry were fired by Prince and it changed the trajectory of their career. And just so incredible that as I went back to edit and I thought, okay, you know, at one point toward the end, Jimmy goes, well, we're at about two hours. We're going to obviously going to cut this down. And as I went back to, I, I could only take out about five minutes. You know, I do not edit this, but I felt okay uh, in good faith to the listeners. Let's, let's try to really keep it tight. But there were just so many takeaways here and I'll go through them at the end. You guys are going to hear for yourself. I mean, he's, you know, just dropping things like, you know, about Usher and Pharrell. And there's, you know, at one point we had to stop recording for a second because the text was coming in from Bruno Mars and he's talking about producing Mary J. Blige, a new edition. But it really, all of that stuff is cool to talk about and to kind of, you know, get listeners to go, oh, this is, this is cool. This is exciting. What does this guy have to say? But really the heart of it and what I love so much, and, and especially as I listened back and, and we were, you know, making editorial uh, decisions or non-decisions in some points, um, 
was just the the generosity to share his experience. And he and Terry Lewis, who have this very long partnership and have just accomplished so much together. But the the way in which he frames things, it 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 got me to think that I kept pointing out to the editor all of these different uh, different quotes that were just incredible quotes. And I think at some point in the future, what I'll do is go back and just have an episode that is taking, like handpicking some of these quotes that I thought were real gems and then riffing on those principles because it's, it's almost, it's like a business lecture and just a lecture on being a good human being and how you can do both and really find success. So enough from me. We're, we're going to get in there with Jimmy Jam. I really uh, hope you enjoy this as much as I enjoyed sitting down with him. Thanks. We got great advice a long time ago from Clarence Avon. And Clarence Avon kind of at the height of our first you know, just tons and tons of hits happening. Just one, bam, 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 one after the other. He said, you guys need to take some time off. We're like, what are you talking about? We got this and this and this and this. He said, yeah. So take two weeks off. Don't go to the studio. And this is before the days you could do everything on a laptop. So he did have to actually go to a studio to do stuff. And right. he said, don't, don't go to the studio. And I remember the first couple of days, Terry and I were like calling each other. And, you know, there's no cell phones back there. So, so this is, we're primitive times. And uh, it's, he'd go, what you doing, man? No, nothing. Sitting around, what you doing, man? Nothing. Well, you want to go get something to eat or something? Yeah, okay, sure. I mean, like, we literally didn't know what to do with ourselves, right? And then at the end of the first week, we were like, we were kind of into it. We were like, what are you up to, man? Nothing, man, doing nothing. Yeah, me too, man. Doesn't it feel good to do nothing? Yeah, it's cool. And by the end of the second week, we called Clarence and said, can we take a third week off? And he said, absolutely. And when we came back from that, I think we did Herb Alpert's record and we, you know, we, we got right back into it and we learned, listen, it's not all going to stop because you take some time off, but you're around a bunch of people who are all, although they may have your best interest at heart, they are participating financially in what you're doing. So for them to say, oh, just stop. And don't do anything for a while. So it's interesting. I, I, had a, I had a conversation with Drake, and this was maybe a year and a half ago. Matter of fact, we were recording Jacoby, the Australian band. We were recording them. And he stopped by, and we just had a conversation, maybe about an hour, hour and a half conversation. And I asked him, have you taken any time off at any point in time? And he says, oh, we're going to go. Uh, to Dubai for a week or something, and, but we're going to do a couple shows and whatever. And I was like, dude, I said, just, I said, I'm going to just give you advice as somebody said to me. And I said, you, you can take it or, or leave it. And I said, just shut down for a minute. Like literally, like, I know you think you got a million things going and everything's going to stop in your life and you're on a roll, but it was the best advice that somebody gave us. And I said, I'm not saying you're not getting good advice. I'm just saying as an old guy, trust me, for us, it was one of the best things we did as far as our longevity or our whatever you want to call it. And so sure enough, I remember he left and I thought he was going to hit me when he got back, you know, like a week later. And I remember like two weeks probably went by and he finally hit me back and he said, hey, 
He said, hey, I just got back. And I said, oh, good. I said, how'd everything go? He said, good. He said, I did exactly what you said. We did the two gigs or whatever. And then he said, we just we just shut down. And I said, so how do you feel now? He said, oh, my God. He says, I can't wait to get back in the studio. I have all these ideas and all that. I said, good. I said, so, you know, hopefully that works out. And, and obviously he's not slowed down. Since yeah. that, I mean, you know, he's had another number one album, you know, the most streamed record of all time and, you know, all the different, you know, things that have happened for him just did a huge tour, you know, so it was good advice that we were given. And so we try to do that. And sometimes people listen and sometimes people don't. And I, I always think that the advice that you give is only as good as the people you're giving it to. If you're giving it to people who are receiving it, it's great advice. If they're not receiving it or don't want to hear it, you're, I won't say you're wasting your breath because we've had people come back, you know, eight, nine months later, Teddy Riley. We told Teddy, Teddy Riley back a long time ago, there was some award that he should have gotten that we ended up getting, but it was a clear, not a clerical error, but it was just the way that he was doing his credits at the time. And we said, man, you got to clean up your credits. This is your legacy. But he's not thinking about legacy because he's still new and he's hot and, you know, whatever. But we were a little a little older and we were like, you know, no, this all goes on your on your resume. And I said, and nobody knows that, um, you know, this clerical error happened and that's why. And there's no asterisk by anything that you do. It's all great stuff. It's like you got to let people, you know, reward you for doing what you do or award you. And um, I remember six, well, I remember we made sure that he got an award. You know, we went to the organization that was giving the award and we just said, well, you're giving us the award, but you know, he should be getting it. So he's got to get some award. And so they made up an award, which was best new or, or up and coming, or I don't remember what they called it. And it was great. And he got a ton of press and we took a bunch of pictures together and the whole thing. And I remember maybe six months later, I think we were at a Christmas party or something. And he came up to us and he said, I just want to apologize. He said, I totally get what you're saying and whatever. Because as we were standing there, I remember we both, Terry and I both said to him, hey, man, you know, this award we're holding, you're supposed to have. This is really your award. And I'm glad you got an award, which is awesome. But this is our award. And I remember the next year, probably or a couple of years later, he ended up winning the that, award. Yeah. But it was simply because, you know, he made sure that his business and, and those things were together. So that kind of stuff is important to just, you know, put into people's brains and stuff because otherwise they just don't know. Um, so I don't know why I went off on that tangent. <laughs> no, I'll take it. I mean, look, this is the way this rolls. You know, it's like I, I, you sit down, you start talking, you don't know where the interview will start, and and you go yeah. right into that. It's 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 actually very cool to have. We're just we're just talking, and you're you're giving me incredible advice already, just in just in a throwaway conversation. You know, I just uh, I just think that I mean, it's real. I mean, for me. The one thing you can't teach is experience. Yeah. Okay. And that's why people that have been around, um, what they're saying has experience in it. It's like putting spices into food. It's like you can stick some in a microwave or you can actually cook it and let it 
you know, it's like when they talk about fine wine or they talk about, you know, different things that they take, takes time to age and to mature and all of that. And then there's a taste to it that doesn't come immediately. I think that's the same thing with knowledge. It's not that uh, I'm smarter than anybody because Lord knows I'm not. But I have had experiences that I can remember that I can relate that it helped us. And then I'm able to then say that to people. And like I say, some people take it, some people don't. But at least I don't ever want to be the person that doesn't say something. I I would rather say it and whether you agree or disagree or or whatever. Um, When you're talking to smart people, and I think Drake's smart, and I think that uh, Teddy Riley's smart. And I, th- I think when you talk to smart people, it eventually, it sinks in. Or the situation comes up where uh, the analogy when uh, one of our coaches, so my sons both played for Kenny Smith's um, AAU team, basketball. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the thing that Kenny always talked about. He was a guy when I was a kid. He was. Oh, my God. Guy. Yeah, right? The Jet, right? But it was great because Kenny's daughter was singing. And I was able to give him advice on that. My sons were playing basketball. He was able to give me advice on that. And we're still friends to this day. But what was one of the things he used to tell the kids all the time was they'd run these drills and they'd say, well, these are silly drills. I don't know why we're running these drills. And what Kenny would say to me is, I'm just filling their tool belts. So these kids all have hammers and screwdrivers and they they have all kind of different stuff. But now I'm giving them stuff to put in their tool belt that they may not need until they get to college or they go up against a really good player or there's a point in their life and they're not like shocked by it. They're like, oh, wait, I, I got the tool for this, you know, because it's something that's being ingrained. And you don't even know that you're learning it, but you are. But he was such a great teacher and his and his brother Vince uh, both worked with the teams and I just remember that analogy. And so to me, that's what it is. I'm not trying to tell a 20-year-old, an 18-year-old, a 16-year-old how to make music. But I might be able to tell them something like take some time off or maybe listen to this. This reminds me of something you're doing. Listen to this record by this guy, this old guy or whoever it is or this old woman or whatever. And there's some people that take it and I watch what happens and it's generally very positive. But it's all just filling the tool belt with stuff so that when you get in situations in the recording studio, um, and, and we've been fortunate enough to, you know, talk to Quincy Jones and and, and learn from everybody, but but also talk to, um, you know, Dev Hines and or, or talk to uh, Pharrell or talk to whoever, where you think it's going to be this thing where you're teaching them something, but they're teaching us something because we're listening to what they're saying. It's a conversation. And uh, that's the best. And uh, when you go, oh, I remember when I was talking to Pharrell and he said, blah, 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 blah. Doesn't matter that he's younger. It's just that he's a smart guy who's very talented. And if you listen to what he says, you can take what he says and apply it to what you do. Whether you're not in hip hop, whether you're you know a country singer, or if you're a rock singer or whatever that is. He just has a, a, a knowledge base that's, you know, just deep enough that it you just get it, you know. And then when you see people like that and then they're successful, that's the best 
Because you just go, yeah, of course they are. And you know why. If you get a chance to know them, you get it. You know, it's, yes, they make hit songs, but there's a bass that's, you know, above and beyond that, which is, yeah. which is cool. Well, that's what I felt in listening. I, I heard uh, you know, your interview with Terry, which was really, <laughs> really was, cool. That was uh, fun. I, it, it was looking so, back, so great. Looking I, mean, back I appreciated on it. it on so many levels, but, but on, on the level you're talking about, it's like, here are these guys, you know, you... you we, we, you know, for anybody listening, we're we're at flight time, and I walk in, and it's just, I mean, the the is it platinum albums, gold albums, you know, just just pictures of Janet Jackson. It's just it's incredible, and yet you are so, uh, and it came across in that interview. Both of you are so generous with your your thoughts, and even you sitting down here with me, I feel like there's a there's there's like a this teacher within you as much as what you do there there's this desire to give back in some way uh with with all of your experience which is great for the rest of us well i think just overall philosophy is you know you want to leave a place better than you find it and the music industry for us has taken us around the world and exposed us to things that a couple of guys from minneapolis you know, that grew up together would never, ever dream to see. Wouldn't even, and it wasn't in our dreams to, I mean, I was looking at some old pictures um, the other day and I was looking at, we spoke at the United Nations. And I remember as a kid uh, being at the, I mean, studying the United Nations in school and what that was and to be actually there addressing people from around the world. And at that point in time, we were working on a on a Korean song um, to try to help reunite North and South Korea and try to make a soundtrack for that happening because I think music is the ultimate language that speaks to everybody. It speaks to everybody's heart. And uh, from what I understand at the time that North Korea, uh, you know, the people in power have heard the song. I don't know whether it has contributed. I know it hasn't heard anything. But, you know, there's all kinds of dreams and things that you don't even know you have, but music has allowed us to explore those things. Um, the other thing is we've been around, you know, like when I mentioned I, Quincy Jones, I mentioned before Clarence Avant, who is the best, is my favorite person in the whole world. And um, and I, I said to somebody the other day, I was talking about Clarence, and they said, they said, Clarence Avant, I've heard that name before. And I said, well, I'll put it to you like this. Quincy's last book. Well, I don't know. I don't know if it was his last book because Quincy keeps writing books because he can do that. But I just remember that there was a point where uh, there's a chapter in Clarence's book that is, I mean, excuse me, in Clarence's book. There's a chapter in Quincy's book that's, does that that's a, you. I'll, I'll make note of it and okay. people will have to know that, we, that cars exist. We're, we are, yeah. <laughs> cars definitely exist. And and when you said, you know, we're at flight time, I mean, we're, listening in the middle of a big warehouse and our, and our, so we got, you know, particularly during the day, which is the d- daytime we're actually talking, there's all this activity, right? Because there's trucks going in and all that. And that's fine. At night, it totally chills. Like there's nobody around, which is the best uh, you know, kind of cool, yeah. cool environment. But I remember talking to somebody about Quincy's book and we and talking about Clarence Avant. And I just said, I'll put it like this in Quincy's book. 
There's a whole chapter on Clarence Avon in Quincy's book. So if you want to know how much Clarence means to Quincy, which should be a good indicator of his kind of importance uh, in people's lives, including us and including people that don't even know who he is. I mean, he's given us some of the best advice ever. And Is he the one listened- that told you if you're not doing vocals, you're not really... Was that him? No, that, that, no, no, that doesn't throw me off at all. That's, that was Leon Silvers III. Okay. And Leon Silvers III, interestingly enough, um, was one of our favorite producers. Um, this was right around the time, right before we, we got in the time we were, we were flight time. We were still a band, but before, you know, Prince came in and did his magic and Morris Day came in and, and the time happened. But we were into those records, Shalimar and the Whispers and those records back uh, for Solar Records back in the day. And Leon Silvers did every one of those records. And they were amazing. And when we came to L.A., we actually met Leon at a charity basketball game. It was the Silvers versus um, one of the stations, maybe KJLH or something like that. And so they recruited us to play because Terry played basketball. I was I was horrible. Anyway, but. I went, we sat on the bench and the whole thing. So afterwards, we ended up meeting Leon, going to the studio with him. I think we played him some demos. Uh, John McClain was there, and John McClain is one of the uh, uh, executors now of the Jackson estate. Uh, so they were all very close, and it was just weird how it got together. And, uh, and John McClain was the person that hooked us up with Janet Jackson. But we met him through Leon. Because he was at the studio when we were playing Leon stuff, John McClain was there. And I don't even remember that. But he said, no, I remember you guys when you came in and you played your stuff and, you know, whatever. So there's this all this crazy kind of connection. And and uh, Steve Hodge, who mixed all of Leon's records, ended up becoming our engineer when we did the SOS band. We kept saying, we want Steve Hodge. And we, we didn't know him. But we just knew that we wanted him to be our engineer. So I hope I'm not weaving this too crazily. The day we got fired from the time, which was Prince basically fired us because he had told us, don't produce other records on, right. on other people, uh, which is, I think, a pretty well-known story for people to know our, our history. Uh, we left that meeting, which was at Sunset Sound, and we had already booked time to mix the SOS band record with Steve, but Prince called this last minute meeting. So we thought we were going to start recording the next record. So he fired us. So we walk into the studio. Steve Hodge is there. This is the first time we've met him in our life. And we walk in the studio and I guess we're looking kind of glum. And we said, oh, hey, Steve, hi, how are you? nice to meet you, you know, whatever. And he said, what's wrong with you guys? And we said, oh, we just got fired from the time. He said, really? And he said, yeah. He said, well, he said, I don't know what that situation was, but I can tell you, you ain't got nothing to worry about because this record here is a smash. And we were like, really? And he said, yeah. And he's played it, you know, the mix. And it was Just Be Good To Me, which ended up being our first really big record, our first number one record. And that wouldn't have happened without, you know, Leon's influence before we knew him from just looking at liner notes on albums. And seeing his name and then always seeing Steve Hodge's name and going, we love Leon. We want our sound to sound like that. 
and then getting, you know, Steve Hodge because of that. And I remember one day we were mixing this one song and I remember um, for Climax, um, the, the all girl uh, band. And I remember uh, Dick Griffey, who was the owner and uh, was running Solar Records, but he was the, the owner of Solar. And I remember he, we turned the mix in and I can't remember who mixed it, but he said, now I'm going to show y'all how to mix. And he comes back a few days later and with this mix that's absolutely killing, right? We were like, oh man, yeah, that's killing. Dick, who did that? And we were, and Dick said, I did, right? So later on, after we got to know Steve and Steve Hodge became our, literally our engineer, he moved to Minneapolis and everything from control forward in that era, he did, mixed all those records. And I remember we asked, we said, yeah, I remember we did this Climax record and Dick Griffey said whatever, whatever. And Steve said, I mixed that. And we said, oh, okay. I said, no, that that makes some sense now, you know. So, yeah, it's just a weird, you know, it's just a weird kind of how everything just kind of gels together. I mean, we yeah. met we met Clarence Avant because Leon Silvers heard one of the songs on the demo that we were playing at the studio that was called High Hopes. And he remembered the song and he said, you know, that song y'all had, High Hopes? He said, I want to do that on the SOS band because he was producing the album, the one before we that we did. And so he said, uh, he said, okay, yeah, cool, cool. So anyway, we didn't do it. He totally did the track, totally did the whole thing. Came out good. It was uh, back in the day what they called a turntable hit, meaning that it got played all over the radio, but it didn't actually sell. <laughs> but Radio loved it. They loved the way it sounded. Now, our version that we did when we met with Clarence, and Clarence said, I want you guys to work on the next SOS record. Yeah. And we said, oh, wow, that's cool. And he said, yeah. He said, that High Hopes record, you guys did that record, right? And I said, well, we wrote it, but we didn't produce it. And he said, oh. He said, what was different about it? What did you guys do different? I said, well, we can play you the demo of the song. And we played him the demo. And it was a lot funkier and a lot looser. And of course, Terry was playing the bass. And it was just a, you know, Leon was very specific and everything was very locked in. And we were a lot more sloppy, I guess you could just call it. But Clarence said, oh, yeah, no, I like the way this sounds. This, you know, this has got something on it. And we said, yeah, this got the chili sauce on it. He said, oh, chili sauce. He said, I like that. I like that. Ah, he laughed. And he always called us the two thugs because we were always in hats and suits, you know? Yeah. He, he always called us the two thugs. He said, okay, well, you two thugs go down to Atlanta and, and do SOS band. So it's just interesting the connection of people that we got involved with just from a charity basketball game, basically. Yeah. And being on people's radar, uh, there was a girl named Dina Andrews who, who kind of was managing us, but she was – what she was doing was making introductions to, cause she worked at solar. So we've made introductions to Dick Griffey. She knew Leon Silver. She knew all these people. And that was so important. Those kind of connections to get us going. And then we all lived together for, for quite a while. And honestly, the thing that changed that was when we met with Clarence the first time. And I remember, uh, uh Dina had met with Clarence before that. So when we came in the office, we met with Clarence, we had our meeting. And then at the end of it, Clarence said, uh, who's the young lady representing you? Oh, no, he, he said, now, about your fee, 
And we were like, oh, Clarence, you know, we can, you know, we, we can cut it down, you know, just whatever you need, you know, we can do it. He said, cut it down. He said, you're not asking for enough. He said, and I can't remember, pardon me, I can't even remember what we asked for. I don't know, a thousand bucks or something like that. He said, um, I'm going to pay you $5,000 uh, plus your expenses and your whatever, whatever. That's gonna be just your fee because that's fair. And we were like, wow, okay. And he said, and your young lady, she's not asking enough. That's she's what she's asking is too low for what you guys are doing. And we were like, wow. So that was one of the first things we knew. And, and it's, she wasn't really a manager. She was just someone that was helping us out. Right. But it gave us an insight into, you know, Clarence. I mean, Clarence never took a dime from us. Um, we agreed that we would split publishing on songs that we wrote for his artists. So Alexander O'Neill, Sherelle. Uh, SOS band, those artists, we would split, nothing else. We never paid them a percentage of, you know, anything. And it was interesting, after a while, we would go, Clarence, um, don't you need anything, whatever? He said, no, I'm good, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm good. And we were like, you know, he talked us out of a really bad publishing deal we were about to jump into. He just said, if you sign that deal, I'm never speaking to you again. And we were like, oh. But when he broke it down, he said... You know, he just very plain, just so you could understand him. He just said, listen, he said, what do you need? What do you need the money for? And we're like, well, we want to get, you know, cars and a place to live and whatever. He says, well, you, do you have a car you're driving now? It's like, yeah. You have a place to live now? Yeah. He said, okay. So you have that no matter what. Okay. He said, the deal's a three-year deal. He said, there's two of you. So now you're splitting the money in half. Now there's Uncle Sam, and you're splitting it with him too, another another fifty percent apiece. Now you got to pay your lawyer to you know do that. You got to pay you know you're going to have, have taxes now, so you're going to have to pay an accountant now to do that and whatever. And he says now by the end of the day, he said I'll guarantee you your first royalty check that you're going to see from the SOS band record is going to be more than that whole deal. And he was absolutely right. Yeah. So we could have really screwed up, but he just he just made it so we weren't going to screw up. So I remember. I'm oh, sorry. Go 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 on. No no. So I so so what I remember was just kind of the the the, the into that era of the story. Uh, Clarence said. Uh, I remember Clarence had this car, and it was you know it was it was an okay car, but it wasn't a car that we felt befitted Clarence, right? And I remember we decided to have lunch at the, uh, I think it was at the Ivy, which is one of our favorite restaurants. So I remember we pull up to the, we all pull up to the Ivy, Clarence pulls up in his car. We had gotten Clarence a Rolls Royce Corniche. And so when we came out the restaurant and the guy, he gives the guy the ticket and up pulls this beautiful <laughs> kind of cream colored Rolls Royce Corniche with the top down, Right. And Clarence goes, no, 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 man, this ain't my car, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever. And the guy says, oh, no, the, so this is your car. He said, no, 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 I got a blue whatever. I don't remember what you, it might have been a Mercedes, I don't, I'm not sure. But he said, no, 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 I, I have a whatever. And the guy says, no, this, this is your car. And then he goes, 
He says, sir, what's your name? And he says, Clarence Avon. And we had gotten this little plaque on the inside of the car that said, this car built especially for Clarence Avon. And the guy looked at it and he pointed it out to Clarence. He said, your name's in this car. And I remember Clarence, I don't know whether he cried or not, but it was just like, he just said nobody had ever done something like that. And we didn't know any better, but we just were like, this dude is doing too much from, for us to not have him in, you know, at the time that was the only thing we could think of. Like, let's put you in something where you pull up and people that don't know who you are will recognize you as someone of means who should be respected and treated in the absolute best way, you know, like you should be treated like royalty. Um, and that, that was a great story. It was cool, man. It was, it was so cool. And he he kept the car for quite a while. He eventually got rid of it, but he kept it for quite a while. And what what was it that you were saying that, that Quincy said about him and you were saying something that you were talking to a friend about the chapter in the book, uh, it's just, it was, he saying all the Quincy is uh, uh, Clarence is Quincy's like just best friend ever, just as far as advice. Um, you know, they had their spats and they, they, they've had their arguments and all that, but it's at the end of the day, they wouldn't exist without each other. And, and so much of Quincy, I mean, Quincy is like a book in its, in himself, just because of obviously what he's made out of his life, but what he's learned from being like, this was before we knew, we knew Quincy because of his albums in the like the A&M records days, you know, the dude and those records and that. And obviously I know like uh, Ironside and Sanford and Son theme. And like, I just knew those things. So I, for me, he was always great. I didn't know Seattle. I didn't know he was, you know, at 14, 15 years old, he's out playing in bands and just, I had no idea. So it was, it's weird. It's just because Clarence for us was such a um, mentor is, is too small a word for what Clarence was for us or, or, and continues to be. But the fact that he held Quincy in such high regard and Quincy from Clarence just saying to him, because Quincy was working on, I remember Quincy was working on a Patty Austin album. And he said, man, I got this Patty Austin album and man, you know, whatever. And Clarence said to Quincy, hey, man, I got these two thugs, man. They're, they're, they'll, you know, they'll lace her up real nice, blah, blah, blah. And Clarence, and Quincy didn't even question it. He just said, okay, cool. We're, we're, and he said, they don't live in L.A., they live in Minneapolis. And he said, fine, I'll put her on a plane in Minneapolis and we'll see what happens. <laughs> and when Clarence called us and said, hey, Quincy's sending Patty Austin up. And we're like going, What? And he said, yeah, yeah, I told him you could do it. And it was like, just, it was nuts. And I remember the sessions were like, we planned, we had three songs. We said, we'll do it over three days. She knocked out two songs the first night she got there. All the backgrounds, all the stuff. We were sitting there going, oh, yeah. Uh." We were were dumbfounded. We were like, okay, well, we'll do the next one tomorrow. And we had literally... Barely put it together. So we were like hustling and trying to put it together. Is one of the, the, she was the most, the smartest, most savvy person in the studio ever. So of course she was part of Quincy's 
team, yeah. you know? Yeah. There's just something that's so cool about that. She also was so funny. And we kept saying, like, if she was coming up in this generation, she'd be like Ellen. Like, she'd have, like, a talk show. And she, because she's so warm personable, and so yeah. personable, but she's so smart and so witty and so funny. And she was great with us. I mean, she treated us with kid gloves. She knew we didn't know what the hell we were doing. <laughs> but... We, I remember we put orchestration on everything and we just tried to make a record that would make Quincy proud of us, a record that would, you know, so Clarence didn't look like a fool. There was all kind of pressure making this record, but it was the most enjoyable, enlightening, educational experience for us to know what a vocalist can do. And she's kind of, to this day for us, sort of the standard of what can be done. Well, I loved I loved hearing uh, a little bit about that, her in the in coming into the studio and just blowing you away to the point where you weren't ready. And then Michael Jackson, when you were in the studio with him and he did the same. And that was the other one. Y- yeah. Well, Michael was the other one. one. I'd, I'd love to hear. So Michael was, uh, Michael was interesting. The, the whole kind of episode of that. And, and once again, um, Michael's, somebody had called, uh, well, it wasn't even our manager. We never really had a manager. That's the funny thing. Because Clarence spoiled us. And then we just kind of thought, well, management to me is just somebody, people know how to get in touch with us. So they'll ask us, do we want to do something? We'll use our common sense and either go, yeah, we'll do it or no, we won't. And in Michael's case, Michael called Janet and said, hey, Janet, I'd like the guys to work on my record, but I'd like to do a duet with you. And she said, yeah, that's fine. Give him a call, you know, whatever. I'd, I'd love to do it. And it was an interesting point of Michael's life because Janet at that time arguably was probably the bigger star. She was coming off the, you know, obviously the Control album, the Rhythm Nation follow-up, and then the Janet album. So she was three for three, huge records. So it was really interesting. And our, you know, kind of, I don't know whether you want to call them maternal instincts or whatever, were always to protect Janet from whatever. And I mean, in a lot of our decision-making process was, you know, if other artists that we thought, I'm not sure she would like that. It's like, we wouldn't do. So we were like, when she said, no, I'm cool with it. Let's, let's do it. Great. So I remember we told Janet to come to Minneapolis just cause I wanted her just in the room, just as we were making these tracks. And I just said, uh, I just need your inspiration. And she said, okay. So anyway, we did like six tracks. And I remember her saying, the one that ended up becoming Scream, she said, that's the one he's going to like. And I said, how do you know? And she said, because I know my brother. And I said, okay. I said, which one do you like? And she said, I like this other track. I hope he doesn't like that one. Right? (laughs) And I said, why? And she said, because I want that for my album. And I said, oh, okay, cool. So anyway, we gather all our stuff. We go to New York. We go to Hit Factory, which was, at the time, that was the studio in New York where everything was happening. It was like six floors and crazy. Of course, Michael has the biggest room. Not only does he have the biggest room, he's got speakers in front of the main speakers that are there. He brings in literally his own speakers, right? And he sits down and he's very calm and very, like, Oh, it's nice to meet you and, you know, whatever, blah, blah, blah. And we had met before, I think when he was on the bad tour, he came to Minneapolis. So we had met briefly before and uh, we were, you know, it was just like, you know, it's good to catch up with you guys, blah, blah, blah. Okay, play the tracks. So we play the tracks and 
He's playing them at a volume that I probably have not heard since <laughs> because that part of my hearing is probably gone. Uh, but, I re- but I remember after each, each track, he said, yeah, I like that. I really like that. Okay, let's play the next one. And then he'd blast them. So we went through this, like the six tracks. And he said, um, okay, can we hear number two? Can I hear number two again? And number two was Scream, right? So you listen to that. And then he said, and then let me hear number five. And number five was the one that Janet liked. And he listened to those two. And he said, I think, I think number two, I think number two is the one, I think that's, that really has the, the forcefulness and the energy that we're looking for. But as he's saying it, he's very calm and he's very, he's not dancing or anything. He's just very calm. And we were like, oh, okay, Michael, whatever. And I said, Janet said, that's the one you'd, you'd like. And he said, Janet, why do you say that? And he said, she said, because I know you. She said, I know what you like. And she said, he said, oh, okay, which one do you like? And she said, oh, that one's great. I, I, that one's good with me. And she said, okay, cool. <laughs> so the one that he didn't take ended up becoming Runaway uh-huh. for her, which was a big record for her. So uh-huh. she was happy about that. Anyway, um, we go to his, uh, ironically, in Trump Tower. He had a huge uh, penthouse up there. And we went and recorded, or not recorded, but he he had the whole kind of idea of what lyrically he wanted to do and all that. And we listened and we kind of, you know, contributed and did some stuff and we added little parts here and there. And then we're done. We're like, great. Let's, when do you want to record it? And he said, well, let's just, let's just take our time and make sure we challenge ourselves to make sure that we really have the right, you know, every word should be correct in that, right? We're like, uh, okay, cool. Now, the school we come from, which is the print school, <laughs> is it's done. It's, it's done. It's like we wrote it. It's great. Go. And so I always tell people there's the print school and the Michael Jackson school. Prince was a song a day. Start to finish, write it, play it, mix it. If it took more than a day, it really wasn't happening. Very rarely, Right. Michael was like, over the next two or three days, he kept saying, have we really challenged ourselves to, and we're like going, yeah, we challenged ourselves. And Janet is much more the Prince thing. She writes it, there it is, we might change one word, something, we're done, right? So anyway, after three or four days, we're like, okay, I think, Michael, I think we we really got it. I mean, we, we don't want to overthink things. Yeah, you're right, we don't want to overthink things. Okay, great. So we go in the studio. So we go into Hit Factory, back to Hit Factory, I should say, and um, Michael's wearing uh, boots with uh, like chains on them and jingly stuff and all kinds of jewelry and all kinds of different stuff. And um, I was like, uh, okay, I got a million messages. I don't know my kids, but they're they'll survive anyway. <laughs> So we go to Hit Factory. He's wearing, you know, jingly shoes and all kinds of stuff. Like when you're in the studio, the whole idea is, you know, no jewelry, nothing that jingles. You just want to be able to just pick up the the voice on the microphone. So that was the big deal. And we were like, should we tell him to take that stuff off? And we're like, well, let's just have him just run a take and just, you know, we'll see, you know, what we want to do. 
So Michael's very calm, very quiet, very nice. Uh, I think, if I'm if I'm not mistaken, I think Lisa Marie was there. That was when they were married. And uh, and I remember, um, I remember my wife asked Lisa Marie, "What did you What did you see in Michael? Like what What brought you together?" And she said, "Honestly, he's the most kind person." I've ever met in my life, besides the fact that we understand fame and we understand all of those things. He was the kindest person I'd ever met. And I got to say, after being around him, that was exactly my impression. Like, I totally, I totally got it, right? So anyway, he goes in, very calm and quiet, and we said, can you hear everything okay, Michael? Yeah. We said, okay, um, we'll just we'll just run it and get levels, and you know, we'll make sure everything's okay for you. Okay, sounds good. And Terry and I are sitting kind of at the soundboard, or kind of right behind the soundboard, and Janet's sitting over our shoulders, basically. So now the song comes on, and he's still very quiet. And as soon as the beat hits. He starts dancing around the room, clapping his hands, snapping his fingers, jingle, jingle, jingle everywhere, like everything wrong, technically for recording, right? But it's like, uh, uh, what was the, oh, the Tasmanian devil. Like it just was like he turned into this other being. And he started singing and he starts singing and we're like going, it was like this, I think it was this old Maxell cassette commercial back in the day where the guy's sitting in the chair and the wind's like it blowing. Blow away, yeah. That's what it was. It was like, and I'm telling you, from start to finish, he kills the song. So when the sound goes out, we're just kind of silent because I think we're like in a state of shock. And uh, he goes, how was that? <laughs> and we were like, uh, yeah, Mike. Yeah. Yeah. That was, uh, that was, that was really good. He said, I should do another one, right? Yeah. Great idea. Yeah. You should do another one. And Janet leans in and Janet was supposed to do her vocal after Michael. He was going to do her vocal. She leans over my shoulder and just says in my ear, I'll do my vocal in Minneapolis. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> he ain't nobody following that, right? He proceeds to do three or four more takes exactly the same with the hand claps, with the snaps, with all of that. So that's all part of it. And I remember thinking, it sounds like a Michael record. And I now I realize in listening to the Quincy Jones Michael records, all those things are in there, but they just become part of the record. And so it wasn't about ever changing what he did or... I mean, we, there was nothing really to tell him. There was one, maybe one cleanup spot or whatever, but it was, it was perfect. So that was, that was the most, for me, that was the most impressionable session ever, or the most memorable. Just his energy, his excitement about the song, the whole thing, Janet being there, uh, Bruce Wedeen, his engineer being there, who's, you know, legendary. I mean, just the whole thing was just, was just amazing. And I remember um, he came out after he did like his four takes or something. 
And he said, do you think you, can you use that stuff? And we said, oh no, it's Michael, it's killer. We're going to comp the vocal. It's, it's, you know, take the best parts of it. It's going to be great. And, uh, he says, Janet, he said, Janet, are you going to sing now? And she goes, no, she said, I, she said, I was going to, but I, I don't know that it's dry in here. The air conditioning, it's a little bit. Yeah, that's, I, yeah, I agree. Something, something, something. Yeah. She goes, I'm, I'm going to do, I, she said, I think I'm going to do my vocal in Minneapolis. And she said, and he goes, Minneapolis. Okay. That's cool. So I remember we go and do her vocal and she does. She comes to Minneapolis. We do her vocal. Um, she kills it. We send it to Michael. Michael goes, wow, Janet's vocal sounds really good. And I said, oh, thanks, Michael. He said, it sounds really good, really good. Where'd you do that vocal? Minneapolis. I want to come to Minneapolis. Well, sure, Michael, why do you want to come to Minneapolis? He said, well, he said, I, I want to try my vocal up there. And we said, okay, you can if you want, but really your vocal's killer. It's like perfect. Yeah, but I'd, I'd just like to come up and just see, you know, what, and, and I thought, and the first thing that, I thought was they're siblings, but Michael's competitive. And the fact that he thinks she sounds so good, it's like, no, 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 I'm going to, I'm going to not, not, I don't think so much outdo her, but I'm going to make sure that my vocal <laughs> sounds, sounds like that, that, like that yeah. as good as that. And of course he came to town. It was great. I remember the mall of, of America cause it was cold. It was winter time up there. And I remember he could put a, you know, like a ski mask on and walk around the Mall of America, which was like his favorite thing to do. And nobody knew who he was. Uh-uh. And he loved it. And he had a great time. And what it ended up doing was the other songs that we ended up doing all came from that visit. Because he was like, play, play me that other track. You remember that other track you had? Play me that, blah, blah, blah. And we ended up doing not like three or four other tracks, plus some other things that he had already started that he wanted to finish. So it, that was the thing that really kind of ended up bonding us together. Well, it's interesting because that sounds like what you were saying earlier about going to do a charity basketball game and you're around people and one person says, meet this person who sends you to this person. And, you know, I, I was going to ask you, I, mean, I had a whole slew of questions, which we, you know, may or may not get to. That's, <laughs> Sorry. that's fine. But no, because this is, this is, it's better to hear what's, what's actually present with you right now. But I was actually going to ask you... Um, your dad was uh, a musician, yes. uh, uh, blues and jazz, and so you you grew up in music. Did you did you feel like this is what you did? You know, at a very early age, you were going to somehow be involved in music and being around. You know, having a, a parent who's in the business. Do you feel like you you kind of just saw the lifestyle, or you or you picked up behaviors or habits that that ended up kind of helping you along later on, or Definitely all of that. I mean, um, I mean, I think I got my first drum set. I think they, <laughs> my parents got me my first drum set when I was like three years old. And um, I feel so sorry for them. But I was, <laughs> I was constantly banging on stuff all the time. And I think my dad recognized that I had some sort of musical talent. Um, there was always pianos and organs and keyboards around the house. So I always kind of gravitated toward the keyboard. I could play anything I could hear on the radio. Um, I couldn't read music, never really learned to read music really, but I could by ear anything that I heard on the radio, I could basically play. And so um, 
I remember the, you know, as fate would have it, um, I would go to my dad's gigs and he had a, tr- basically it was a trio. It was my dad, a guitar player named Coffee, and whatever drummer he could pick up because he never could keep a drummer steady. So there was always different drummers. Every week a different drummer, every week a different drummer. And I remember uh, there was a club he was playing at. I think it was called the Surfside, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and he played it every weekend. And we, and me and my mom would go to the shows and, and always uh, watch. So I remember he said, um, or, or the drummer was late one time to a gig. And Coffee said, why don't you let your son play? He knows the whole set. And my dad was like, eh, I'm not really sure, whatever. But he first, the first set he did was always like nine o'clock. So people were still having dinner. So it was like, it was kind of a quiet set. It was not that big a deal. So I ended up drumming for him for, you know, like 45 minutes or whatever. How old were you at this? Uh, 12. Oh, wow. Okay, yeah. go on. So. And so, um, and so I did, I did that and everybody seemed to enjoy it and that. Uh, next week, kind of the same thing I remember happened again. And I, I did it again, and everything went really good. And uh, then I remember Coffee saying to my dad, and my dad's name was J- Jimmy also, but they called him Jim. He said, "He said Jim, why don't you just let your son just play the whole night? He knows all all the songs." And he said, "No, nah, he's too young. Whatever, 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 whatever." So then, um, I guess the next week, same thing. I'm having trouble getting a drummer or whatever. And I, I had a drum set. They had gotten me a, you know, like a professional drum set at that point. So I had a drum set. So anyway, I set up my stuff. Uh, my mom was my agent because he was going to give me, I don't remember what he's going to give me, 20 bucks or something. Yeah. And my mom said, no, 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 no. You pay him just like you'd pay any drummer in the band, which I don't know, maybe 250, 300 bucks for the night or whatever back in that day. Because we're talking 70 <laughs> Wow. I was what I was 12, what I say 12 years old. So we're talking 71, yeah. 72 in that area. And uh, anyway, I drummed the whole night, did good. I did, um, we used to do that song Dialogue by Chicago, which is a kind of a back and forth uh, conversation, but we made it into a father son conversation. And I knew, so I sang a little bit too, or a little bit. That was more talking than singing. And, um, but yeah, that was, that was my, that was my gig. During that time was when I met Terry and Terry played the bass and uh, Terry was the coolest person I'd ever met in my life. He was like my, the older brother I didn't have. And um, I remember Terry said, Hey man, Let's do a gig. We were in the summer school program called Upward Bound at the University of Minnesota. So it was great because we were staying in dorms and stuff. But, you know, 12 years old, 13 years old, it was like the greatest thing ever. And, uh, you know, we were just on our own for I think it was a six week program or something like that. So I, I don't know. I just remembered it was the greatest thing ever. Just living on our own, doing our own thing. It was great. And he says, we're going to do, we're going to put a little band together and do play for the end of the year, you know, dance or end of the summer dance. We're like, okay, cool. So I said, okay, well, I, I'll get my drum set and whatever, whatever. He said, no, I already got a drummer. And I said, but I, I play drums. And he says, yeah, but you play piano too. He said, how do you know? And he says, cause I heard you playing down in the lunchroom and, uh, and your dad plays. So you can play, obviously you can play a keyboard. 
And then I heard his drummer, and his drummer was Jelly Bean Johnson, who ended up being the time drummer. And I was like, yeah, keyboards, we can do that. So I don't know. We were talking about it the other day. I don't remember how we got out there. But anyway, we went to the club where my dad kept his organ. Uh, and we basically stole it <laughs> and uh, took it to this to this gig that we did at the University of Minnesota. And I just remember we played all these songs instrumental because we nobody really we didn't have a singer. But we played. Uh, but I remember the songs we played. Uh, Tuesday Heartbreak by Stevie Wonder, uh, What Is Hip and Soul Vaccination by Tower of Power, Keep Your Head to the Sky by Earth Wind and Fire. Um, I'm trying to think. I think we might have played something by the Isleys, but I, I can't re- quite remember what it was. But I think we played New Birth. I can understand it. So we had our little set list, but we just didn't. It was all instrumentals. Yeah. But everybody loved it. Everybody thought it was like really cool and it, and it was great. And I remember we, you know, took the organ back and then I don't know how, I don't know who the heck was driving. It probably, probably was Terry. He was a couple of years older than me. But anyway, we got everything back set up. And basically that was what joined us at the hip was him saying, you're a keyboard player. And then I remember us trying to write songs together and we... We, we were in rival bands. You know, I put a band together called Mind and Matter, which was kind of a singing group, kind of Philadelphia International style singing group. He put a band together. Well, Flight Time ended up being the band. And it was very uh, funkadelic, very George Clinton influenced in that. And when we would get together to write, he'd come up with this funky track. And then I'd put this pretty melodic melody over the top because I grew up kind of listening to pop music. And it just was it was like just clash, clash, clash. And I remember we really never figured it. I mean, we figured it out later on working with the time because we were together all the time. And I remember one of the first songs we did that had a melodic top, but a funky bottom was Just Be Good To Me, the SOS band. So it took us that long to, you know, be in competition with each other in in different bands but always we wanted to be like there was something about t- that just drew me to Terry. I just wanted to be around him and the same for him with me. And so we figured it out. But it wasn't an instant, oh, we get together and wrote songs. I mean, we got together and wrote horrible songs. But then when Terry was doing like his demos for Flight Time, he called me and he said, hey, come and play keyboards on these on these songs we're doing. And it's like, OK, cool, you know. So we were always joined at the hip, even when we weren't, even in competition with each other. Like yeah. I never was, when his band kicked our band's ass, I never was pissed. I always just looked at him and said, that Terry, man, he's, yeah, he's, that was good. Yeah, you know? the, your mutual admiration comes across so much when you, when you were speaking with each other, it's, it, it just seems like there's a mutual respect and there are different strengths. Yeah, uh, yeah. Y- you know, um I mean, if you want to talk about that a little bit, a bit like what what that collaboration is like, like where where you kind of take the lead in some yeah. parts and he kind of takes the lead in others, what would you what's your assessment on that? Okay, I think our collaborative relationship is is very interesting. We tend to, I think, know our strengths, but we also know our weaknesses, and we know. I think a lot of it is fueled by passion. Um, Obviously, when you talk about the the projects that we've done over the years and you talk about like a Michael Jackson, like we're passionate about that. But I think we both have, 
I don't know whether it's a respect or a, well, it's certainly a respect for each other, Terry and I, but also we're not ego driven that we have to do everything. And so that means that there's certain artists like Usher who would swear to God, Terry does everything and I don't do anything because him and Terry have this, this bond. They have this, um, I don't know whether it's father, son, older brother. I, I don't know what it is. It's just this relationship where Usher at certain points of his career has just said, um, really well, one of our number one songs, you remind me, he said, I'm not going to do the vocal with anybody but Terry. You know, L.A. wanted him to redo the vocal on the song. And he said, and then L.A. said to us, which I'm not sure whether Usher knew, but L.A. Reid said to us, I got this song. It's either my first single or off the album. And we said, well, what do you mean? And he said, the vocal just isn't right. He's singing it like the guy that did the demo. It's just not right. And and Usher, I told Usher, I, I need him to re-sing it. He said, the only person he would re-sing it with is Terry Lewis. Great. So Terry goes to L.A. for a week, basically has to kind of un-hypnotize uh, him, basically make him believe that he's never sang the song before because he's singing it like this demo singer. And then reprogramming, like you're hearing this song for the first time. How would you sing it? Sing it like yourself. Sing it like Usher, right? And I remember the whole process took like a week. I was not there. I was not in a studio at any point. I remember he came back. Um, he played it for me. I thought it sounded amazing. And I remember we got a phone call from L.A. Reed two hours, three hours later saying it's first single, you know? So Terry's strength, I say that to say Terry's strength as a vocal producer, I call him vocal master. He can pull vocals, the vocals on human, human league. I wasn't around. He was locked in a room with Phil Oakey for five days, at least straight, getting him to sing, not like a robot, as most of their songs were, but actually with feeling and grace and compassion and all of those things. And that vocal on human is like no other vocal that they've ever done. So, um, and there's many, many examples of that, but those are two pretty prevalent ones. And that's, you know, that, that's was Terry's strength. Um, but then there's people like Janet, who probably for quite a few years would go, well, Jimmy does everything. Terry doesn't do anything, you know, until um, I remember on Rhythm Nation, we were doing um, uh, what turned out to be living in a world they didn't make. And it was about the school shootings that were happening back in that day, which I can't believe are still ha happening now. It's, it's yeah. amazing to me, uh, but not in a good way. But uh, I remember Terry was at, our new flight time studio, uh, literally building the mix room so we could mix Rhythm Nation because we we wanted that to be the first album we actually mixed in our new mix room. And he walks in with all these uh, <laughs> carpet samples and uh, wallpaper and he goes, Jam, what do you think about this? And, and Janet goes, no, no, Terry, we need lyrics for a song. And he goes, what's it about? And I go through this long explanation and the kids are dying, but it's the adult's fault and, you know, blah, 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 blah. And he goes, yeah, living in a world they didn't make. 
And we're like, yeah. And he goes, okay. <laughs> and 15 minutes later, he's got the lyrics. And we're in the studio singing. Wow. Okay, so Janet was like, damn, that was good. And it's like, yeah, I know. So I guess when you talk about our collaboration, it's it's built on respect. It's built on relationships. It's built on things that we're passionate about. A project lands in front of us. And one of us is going to be real passionate about it most of the time. And one of us may be or may not be. Um, but it's like, you know, well, man, if you feel that, do it. I'll help out if you, what do you, what do you need? And he's just, you know, I need some tracks or whatever. Okay, cool. Or, um, so I'll go, Terry, can you, what do you think about the vocal on this? Can you comp this vocal? I mean, I did the vocal, but can you comp it? And he'll go back in. Um, I remember on, on Janet's vocal for, uh, for Made For Now, the, the latest record with her, I got all the vocals. I did them. I played it for him. He said, can we get her back another day? And I said, yes, we got her back another day. Terry stepped in, got her to do a couple of things that I was trying to get her to do. He got her to do it. And then I comped the vocal. And then I came in like the next night and he's got the vocal up and now he's comping the vocal. And it's just one of those things where we, we, we used to say we have no slack, (laughs) meaning we pick up each other's slack, like whatever we're not hearing or, you know, somebody else is hearing. We did on the Peebo Bryson record that's uh, out now, or the title track to the Peebo Bryson album we have out now, um, is is called Stand for Love. And that was a record that I had done the track and I just had done it. It was just a kind of an idea that I liked. And I just did this track. I did my little, what uh, Janet calls black male vocals on it, because my I can't sing really. But I can sing good enough to tell a singer, you know, what to do. And I put my little black male vocals on there. And I remember uh, Terry came back from Atlanta doing vocals with Peebo. And he said, yeah, man. He said, I had your, um, I had your, di- your, your hard drive. And he says, I took a couple songs off of there. <laughs> and I was like, really? He said, yeah. He said, we did this one. We called it Stand for Love and whatever. And he plays this thing. And I'm like going... No way. And I said, what did you make? You made something out of this? He said, yeah. And it is the most killer record to me of all time. It's going to be his next, his next single. And it's like, it sounds so, I mean, first of all, the idea stand for love is just, and first of all, an amazing idea that we need, whether it's in personal relationships, whether it's in just compassion for other people in the world and respect and all yeah. of those things. It's so brilliant the way he did it. And even Peebo was like, when he, he, people said, when I first heard it, I was like, "Mm, I'm not sure whether this is my kind of thing. And, uh, and Terry said, no, he said, no, trust me. And it's, it's, you know, ended up becoming the title track of the album. And it's those kinds of things that happen in a vacuum that people don't see, but that's kind of the relationship. So Terry has projects that are near and dear to him. He may do the whole project. I may not hear it till it's over, and I may go, you might want to turn the vocal up there, or something just stupid, right? right? Um, The same will happen with us. Like, I'll play him something at the very end of it. Um, uh, But I remember on uh, when the Janet's last album, uh, Unbreakable, um, I remember Janet just would literally listen to a track and go, I'm giving this to Terry. 
you know, it was she just, just no, she would just go, yeah. I'm giving this to Terry because, you know, I, I want to do a song about a, you know, a, a bird that is a, a, a eagle and I want to combine it with something. And it's like, okay. And Terry would like go. And I remember Terry would sit uh, downstairs because we have, we would just set up workstations everywhere for everybody to work. And he was sitting there and I remember he was just going, how the heck am I writing a song about this? And then this is supposed to come together and then the song and whatever. But of course he did it. And when she saw the lyrics, she was just like, oh my God, this is amazing. She changed like a couple of things, you know, because to make it personal for her. Or um, another good example is uh, No More Drama, Mary J. Blige. We did uh, the lyrics for that, but we did them more as a holder for Mary, figuring that she would want to do the lyrics. And when we went to New York, I remember we flew to New York, we played her the song and we said, you can, you know, do the lyrics how you want to do them. And she just, when the song ended, she just said, you've been following me around with like a private detective or something. She said, I'm not changing a word of this. She said, this is perfect. So we have a lot of instances like that. And it's just because I don't know what it is. It's magic. It's it's kismet. It's I, I don't even know what word you want to put on it. But, you know, maybe it is because I admire Terry so much. He admires me so much. But we I know people think we're joined at the hip and we are in many ways. But we each have the freedom to do what we want to do and what we're passionate about. And things that I'm passionate about that Terry feels, oh, you're good at that. Like you have a good eye for this or you have a good ear for this, he just steps back. Yeah. And he knows he can step in when he needs to. Certain relationships with certain artists are are stronger uh than, you know, and I, you know, I have, you know, like hello relationships with a lot of people. He's like in there with them because so much of it, the biggest thing about producing to me is like psychology, psychiatry, um, all of those things, it's, 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 you know, it's coaching, it's trying to get the best performance, but so much of what we do, um, when I think about like new edition, um, and the, the BET, uh, uh, new edition, uh, special was, it was fun. It was good, good mini movie. It was, it was very cool. Um, not everything was, was, well, everything was correct in a, in a, in a movie way, you know, uh, there were certain characters that maybe, it was maybe would have been three characters. They made it into one character, but it got the story across and moving in a credible way. Right. But one of the things with New Edition was Ralph was the lead singer in New Edition. All of a sudden, Johnny Gill is inserted into the group without Ralph knowing. And so before you go into the recording studio, we had a meeting. And we had two guys arguing for Johnny to be in the group. You had two guys arguing against Johnny being in the group. And by the time the meeting was over, well, I should say, right before the meeting was over, we said to Johnny, we said, Johnny, honestly, new addition is Ralph, okay? So on this album, you're probably not going to do any lead vocals. How do you feel about that? And that was a very, it was a calculated ask. And Johnny said, hey, man, I'm a team player, man. I'll do whatever we need to get done to get the album done. At which point, all four guys were on his side. And now we could go make the album, which, by the way, if you listen to Can You Stand the Rain, there's Johnny killing it with Ralph. And those two became best friends. Uh, in the studio initially, 
because they admired each other, what they each brought to it. Um, but now just, they're just friends in, in, in life, you know, besides being, you know, new edition not members. But the psychology of doing that, Jacoby, the band we have now, five guys uh, from different, some of them are related. It's, it's a whole kind of smorgasbord of different styles. But it's like, here's why you guys need to do this and this and this. And we told them the story of the What Time Is It album, where we took a bunch of pictures, but Morris is on the cover. Only Morris. And we were pissed off. We were like, how come we're not on, on we're saying to Prince, how come we're not all on the cover? And this is back in the days where records were on the wall of, of stores. And Prince said, if you walk into a record store and there's a bunch of records on the wall, which record is going to get a, your attention? Six guys on a cover or a guy going like this, looking at his watch. And we're like, yeah, that is true. Yeah. So, okay, so mar- so marketing, add that to Prince's thing. He was so aware of it. And I even, was just going to ask you, was that something that he, would you say that set Prince apart from other artists that you worked with? Like th- just that ev- Everything, to- yes. Yes, because Prince had the best instincts. He was smart and beyond any, I mean, if you, you could, you could cut Prince into a whole bunch of different pieces. You could say, if you just said Prince the piano player, if he didn't sing, he'd be in your top five piano players of all time because of his style, because of his aggressiveness, the attitude in which he played, all of that. You could do the same for bass. You could do the same for guitar. You could do the same for drums. Um, You could do the same for wardrobe styling. You could do the same for engineering. You could do the same for production. He was the ultimate of the ultimate. Greatest musician ever for me because he could take it he could take a, a, anything out of anybody's hands, play it, and hand it back to you, and it, it would be a different instrument he's handing back to you because you would look at that instrument in a different way. You'd approach it in a different way. And that was the thing that was so amazing about him. So, yeah, no, he knew. He knew what he was doing. And, and so what that dovetailed into, which was hilarious, was Morris, the jacket that he has on, on the first album cover, we call that the Presley. And he got it at a thrift store somewhere and, a, you know, Taylor kind of sewed it up and, you know, made it right. So after the whole first tour, all that Morris kept saying is, I got to get a new Presley. I got to get a new Presley, right? So now we go second album cover. He's got the same thing on. And Prince is like, this is the way people expect you to look. So you keep looking at like that. And you guys off stage, no jeans, no cut up shirts, no whatever. You look like the way you look at all times. Wow. And we were like, wow, okay. And this is, and so if you think about it now, that's exactly where things are at now. So this is before Instagram, before anything. He was like, you look like yourself. You don't dress up like other people, you know, because we went, I mean, in flight time, man, we'd, we'd wear fatigues one day. We'd wear space suits one day. We'd wear like all kinds of different stuff. No, who you are on stage is who you are off stage. That was that was his thing. That's why he Prince always walked around. He was always clean, all the time. And that was yeah, that was his thing. And that's really really interesting to me that he was, um, because I think of him as as being uh, kind of 
you know, having a lot of presentation in terms of like how he is his wardrobe yeah. and everything. But you're saying that's also how he was. No, that was that that's was just, his. That's just who he that was, was his philosophy. Hmm. And he went when he picked purple as his color, and everything was purple. Like it, like there was no yeah. But 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 what was cool about it was. We didn't agree with everything and that and but but the thing I will say he was consistent with it. And he was the hardest worker you ever saw. Like he like he would come into our rehearsal and he'd rehearse us for 5 6 hours. And um then he'd go rehearse his own, and he'd always jam with us, right? He'd always pick up his guitar and jam with us. And we'd be like, "Prince, go jam with your own band." But we were we were funkier than his band. That's just my opinion. But uh, he'd go, you know, work with the the Revolution. He'd go work with them for five six hours. Then he'd go to the studio and cut something. And then the next day at practice, he'd come back with a cassette and he'd pop it in and he'd say, "I did this last night," and it would be like nineteen ninety nine, or just some crazy opus, Lady Cab Driver, or something. It'd be like, oh my god. It's like, when did you sleep? Yeah. But he didn't. I mean, he did at some point, I guess. But the whole point was, you can't, if that guy is do, who's doing that is your boss. I mean, that's like, you know, Michael Jordan or like, you know, LeBron James or somebody telling you stay after practice and shoot a bunch of free throws or whatever. If the best guy, the most talented guy who could make it just on their talent has the work ethic of someone with no talent... That's scary. And that's Prince. And that's Michael Jackson. That's what I was going to ask you. Because yeah. you've worked with all of these elites. And you, I don't even think, when you're telling this story, it's almost like you don't even realize that you guys are elite. And and that was one of my questions for you, which is a, a theme that's gone through this podcast. And it's gone through my mind lately, just in, in where I am, which is, you know, it's easy to sit down. It's easy to walk into your place and see all those albums and just go, well, you know, Jimmy and Terry are just more talented than the rest. And yes, there's a lot of talent. You said that you had a musical inclination when you were a kid. You could pick things up. Yes. But from my experience, from sitting down with a bunch of people and just my own personal experience, it's the, it's that work ethic mm -hmm. and that consistency that sets you apart. I mean, would you Because I look at you and I go, when do you sleep? I mean, look at all the album. I'm like, when, oh, did, yeah. you, when no, did you guys sleep? I sleep now. Well, we didn't, we didn't sleep you back didn't. then. We yeah. didn't sleep back then. And, I, and I'll tell you. So walk us through like, like, what did you have to, um, what, what did you have to give up and, and, and sacrifice in order to get what you guys got? Because I know there has to be something you can't, uh, I'm looking out there and going, I, you cannot, <laughs> Give the world all of that, and and th th what there must have been some time. You know, you must have been around the clock at some point. Right? Oh, oh, we we absolutely were, and I can I can give you an example of it. Um, so back when we were in the time, we had um, I, I mentioned Climax earlier as one of the the bands we we produced early on, um, and some of the and working with Leon Silvers, and I remember when we were working with uh, Climax we would work on the weekends. And what we, we would do is Fridays, uh, we would always rehearse Monday through Friday. We would have the weekends off 
for, from the time. So we would rehearse Monday through Friday. Terry and I would catch uh, a red eye to L.A. or whatever. So we'd be in the studio or an evening flight. We'd get in the studio. We'd do what they called at the time 24-hour lockout. Now, 24-hour lockout didn't mean – well, it meant that the studio was yours for 24 hours. Nobody ever stayed in the studio for 24 hours. It was just so that nobody would come in and move faders around and do different stuff. So what it did is you'd come in and work 8, 12 hours, but then you knew nobody would come in those other 12 hours. So you'd do what was called lockout. So me and Terry did lockout, and we were working at this studio called Studio Masters. Uh, and that was a, a studio that, we, that Leon Silvers had turned us on to. And I remember we had an engineer uh, named Tavi Mote. And I remember we came into the session, and I don't even know what time it was. And Tavi said, oh, great, you know, whatever. And we started working on this Climax track. And I remember after we had been working about 12 hours or so, Tavi said, uh, well, what time do you, what, how, how late do you guys think you're going to go? You know, what, what are you thinking? And we were like, hey, man, we got 24-hour lockout. And he said, yeah, but that means you have the studio for 24 hours. And it's like, yeah. And he said, but that doesn't really mean you work 24 hours. It just means you have the studio available. And we're like, oh, we're working. We're working. I mean, I might take a nap or Terry might take a nap or whatever, but no, we're working. And poor Tavi. I remember probably about 18 hours in, there was one thing we were just going to mute on a, on a piece of something. And he said, oh, I'll just, I'll just get rid of it. I'll just record and get rid of it. And back in those days, there was no undo button. When you pressed record, it was gone, right? Magnetic heaven done. Right. <laughs> and I remember it was a line that said, uh, I'm so good. I'm such a mess. A heartbreaker. So fresh or something like that. Right. And he goes, I'm so good, I'm such a mess, a heartbreaker, so fresh. And then he goes in to record, but then it, he didn't quite catch it. And he goes, oh, I missed it. And we were like, no, Tavi, it's cool, man. We'll just mute it. It's cool. It's cool. No, no, I can do it. And after a couple of tries, he goes, a heartbreaker, so fresh. And he said, I think, I think I got it. And we said, yeah, I think you got it. And he played it back, so fresh. And this is, this is before you could take it from another part of the song and loop it back. And there was none of that happening at that point in time. So that was the way it was. And it changed the whole song. So now we just did, I'm so good, I'm such a mess, mute. <laughs> right? And it was like, damn, we could have, because we were, we were awake. We were used, we knew what we needed to do and because we needed to be on a plane back to Minneapolis. So we're like, no, we're using the 24 hours to, to get stuff done. So, I mean, it never felt like a sacrifice. Now, where it got to be funny was Prince found out we were doing that and would at the last minute call like a Saturday rehearsal. And we would always get wind of it somehow and then we wouldn't go or we'd go Saturday evening and work Sunday because he wouldn't work Sundays. Um, so, I mean, there was a sacrifice as long as, I mean, there was not, I didn't never thought of it as a, a sacrifice. We were doing what we wanted to do. Um, it was definitely made hard for us to do. But in our minds, we didn't feel we were taking anything away from the time. And we didn't understand how bettering ourselves 
as producers, as writers, was taking away from anything. We thought we could contribute more yeah. if we knew more. And so that was our thing. Um, and, you know, the time songs Prince wrote. So, and he should write them because I'm not going to write a better song than Prince for the time. But I don't, I think there was a lack of understanding of yeah. that on his, from his point. Yeah. And, and that's what it was. But that's what it was. I mean, well, we I worked- actually love that. You guys said that Prince didn't fire us. He freed us, you know, because you yeah. were able to go on and, and do so many other things. And I wasn't even talking about in relation to him. I just meant like in, in general over your career, when you guys were working around the clock, I, 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 I guess I'm, I'm pointing it out because I think a lot of listeners that, that tune in for this, they're, the, the point is to kind of to go, hey, guys, you, 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 can, you can do this, or maybe yeah. you can't do it on this level, but, but you can do a, a better version of what you're doing if you apply yourself and, and put it. And I think a lot of people just make excuses going, no, well, they've got it easier. Well, but, the thing is that, you know, like I say, you can always, you can always outwork somebody no matter what your talent level is. The scary thing for us, or not scary, but the revelation for us is Prince, who is the most talented person ever in our minds, or certainly, I'd like to make the distinction musician, because I think that's what, when you talk about Michael Jackson and you talk about Prince, and I think they're easily on the same echelon of greatness, but I think Prince was a musician also, whereas Michael was not really a musician, although he could play. But he was a singer-performer. But he was a singer-performer yeah. more so. But they each had work ethic that kept them up all night long trying to get something right. In Prince's case, it was finishing something. But like I say, going to our rehearsal, going to his band's rehearsal, going to the studio, coming back and doing it again. Prince is more talented than all of us put together, but he's outworking all of us too. <laughs> yeah. And that was unacceptable. So whenever he made like a long, uh, you know, we started getting to rehearsals early. Um, we started staying after he said, okay, that's it. And we'd stick around and work on stuff, you know. Um, the other thing too is I think there is, it can't be under... Um, I don't know what's the word. I, I, doing something you love. If you have a chance to do that, there's nothing like that because it's not work and it's not sacrifice. I mean, yes, you are maybe sacrificing some things, although as I look back over my career, um, Terry, Terry probably sacrificed a lot more. I know he did initially because Terry had really good jobs that paid him a lot of money that he gave up and went broke and got his credit screwed totally up and sold a car so we could get, um, you know, recording equipment to make our demos and stuff like that. I mean, he sacrificed a whole lot, although looking back on it, I don't think he would ever even look at it like As that. A, no, exactly. Would, it's just the next thing I that you had to do. more like, like what, you know, I, I guess what I'm saying is, is, it's easy for someone to sit on the sidelines and go, well, look at, they have all of this. And it's like, yeah, but. Oh, yeah, there's a they story also behind. Put in, you know, that's the whole point of this show yeah, is, is that you behind. look at anybody, you scratch the surface and you go, 
there's a lot of work there. There's a yeah. lot of failures. There's a lot of setbacks. Absolutely. That, actually, that's a question I've got because we it's 10,000 yeah. no's and you guys have had such wild success but oh, we're because still, of what trust I know, we're that's still, what I was going to say. We're still adding up the nose. So lay we it get on them, me we with get like them some every of the nose. What are, what are, like, what's an example of of something that, I don't know if you guys were ever knocked to the point where you're like, maybe we're going to quit, but but something that really was a hit. And how did you reframe it in some way to turn it into to your advantage? Or how did you just, you know, pick yourself up and get back in there? What, what, well, I, you know? I mean, listen, I, I got to say the the first major one that was a catastrophe was getting fired from the time because we had never missed a gig in our career. I mean, and, and I'm talking about our career, our local band career, playing in our local bands, you know, me playing with my dad. We never missed a gig. I remember Terry got in a car accident and showed up at a gig we were we were playing we were opening for I want to say the bar case I think it was and back in the day and he came with a big knot on his head he was at the he went to the doctor he somehow got himself to the gig I mean you just didn't miss gigs so the fact that we not only missed a gig uh, with the time getting caught in a snowstorm in Atlanta and then we got fired for missing that snowstorm that was definitely a moment of catastrophe for us. Did you think it was over at any point? Um, I don't think we allowed ourselves to think it was over. We knew that that chapter had closed, although ironically, it really, it, it didn't. It was actually a bluff. We really weren't fired as we found out later on. It was basically a bluff to scare us into acting correctly, I guess. But it backfired because the song we went and got caught in the snowstorm in Atlanta became our first number one record as producers. So it put us on a different path. And I remember that moment for us as we were walking through Atlanta airport, not able to get a flight out. Like we're literally, and if anybody's been to Atlanta airport at that point in time, it was four terminals. I think it's more than that now. And you have to take a train to get to each terminal. We were just trying to get a plane out to anywhere. We were just like anywhere that a plane is flying. And then we were like, Maybe we can get a rent-a-car and drive to an airport that's actually open somewhere. I mean, it was crazy. And the technology didn't exist like it does now with, um, you know, all the apps and on your phone and that whole. I mean, it was, yeah. it was just a different, different time. But, yeah, that was, um, that was a, a, a major setback. But it was interesting because as it turned out, it was a great lesson moving forward that sometimes things happen for reasons that you – you don't know, but you can still affect the outcome of what that is, what looks like a catastrophe. You can rebuild from that. It's certainly bonded. I mean, Terry and I were always bonded anyway, in, 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 in a sense, but that totally bonded us together. Um, Terry got a phone call to join, to rejoin the band um, when they were getting ready to shoot Purple Rain. And... Terry said, what about Jimmy? And uh, he was talking to Jellybean, and, and Jellybean said, uh, no, Prince doesn't want him back. And literally, I've never heard Terry so mad in my life. Like, he just, he just cussed into the phone, like, he said, you tell that little motherfucker, blah, blah, blah. So, like, it was like, oh, shit. I was like, Terry, no. I said, go ahead and do it, man. I said, if, make the movie. That sounds fun. You know, I'm here. I'm not going nowhere, whatever. He said, no, hell no. It's us. We're going to do our thing. 
So it was a very solidifying moment that came as a result of that, you know, what was a catastrophe. And, you know, there's, I think there's lessons throughout life that are like that, but that was the pivotal one for us because it was like, okay, we're, we're bonded and for better or worse, we're moving forward. We get told no to this day. Um, we got told no because we were young and inexperienced. Uh, now we get no because we're old and, you know, I get maybe over the hill. I don't know. You know, um, it's a it's a challenge and the challenges never stop. And the idea that you have it, you got it made and and that it never happens. But I think you have to have an appreciation of what you do um, and and a recognition and an appreciation of the blessing you have. I'm pretty good at making music. And I get to actually make a living. And it's actually taken me around the world and taken my family around the world and has influenced my kids. My Both my sons uh, are both total music heads, you know. And the cool thing about it is my younger son, Max, who has decided that that's his thing, his music is his thing. And luckily, the high school he goes to actually has a digital recording class. And he's taken it for four years. So he's into it and, and loves it. But he, he came from class the other day and he always likes playing me music that he discovers. And I remember he got in the car the other day. Well, actually, ironically, the way things work, uh, we live in Malibu and the power went out because of the winds or whatever. So he'd called an Uber because we couldn't get the gate open to get the car out. And so he hops in an Uber. He gets to school. When I pick him up at the end of the day, he goes, Dad, I got to play you this. The Uber driver had this, and I looked it up. He said, you ever heard of Blood Orange? And I said, Blood Orange? I said, Dev Hines? He said, I don't know. I don't know who the guy is, but listen to this Blood Orange song. So as he's playing me the song, I'm like going, so Max, I said, yeah, Blood Orange is Dev Hines. I said, Dev Hines is this really talented dude. I said, I met him probably 10, 12 years ago. There was a magazine that offered him, like, you can interview anybody who you want to interview. And it was kind of like the new guy and someone experienced having a conversation and they were going to tape it and the whole thing. He picked me. And the building where his little studio loft was, was literally right in front of where our star is on the Walk of Fame, on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, which ironically is at the time was a store called Antenna which is where Terry and I got all our clothes when we moved to LA. So when you talk about just, wow. right, okay, you can't make that kind of stuff up. And so I said, I'm going to let Dev Hines know that you like his, his stuff. And I realized I, don't, I didn't have his contact anymore, but I, so I Instagrammed him. And I just said, hey, Dev, my son, and I took a picture of my screenshot of my, uh, in my car of him playing this song from his new album. And I just said, hey, my son just discovered you. And then I was telling him that we met and we know each other and blah, blah, blah. And he hit me back. He said, hey, he's in Germany or somewhere. And he said, that made my day. He said, I appreciate that so much. I said, I appreciate my son's good taste. And I appreciate that people are still making music that is meaningful. And so I appreciate you for that. So that, you know, makes my heart feel good. That is so cool. And does your son even realize the extent of what you've done? In the field that he's choosing? Yeah, like, like this, yes, like how yes and that? no. Yes and no. Yes and no. 
he he gets it. My older son gets it more just because, you know, my older son, when, for instance, when Janet did uh, the All For You tour and she ended in Hawaii at, at, at Aloha Stadium, and I think HBO taped it or whatever, and he was there, you know, yeah. he was, you know, I don't know, uh, four years old, but he remembers that. He remembers the spectacle of that. And, um, you know, Janet is his, his godmother. So he grew up around that. So he has a little taste of what it is. Um, my, my younger son never really experienced that kind of stuff. I mean, until Janet did the Unbreakable tour, he had never really seen Janet live, but he knew we did the records. Um, but he's just a music discoverer. They're, they're two totally different people, which is great. Um, but yeah, Tyler, my older boy, yeah, he definitely, he, he gets it. He was more, much more of an athlete, played basketball, uh, went to Arizona State for basketball, uh, blew out his uh, knee, ACL, and just said, I'm done. But in the meantime, it picked up music because as he, he recovered, it was kind of his natural huh. thing, you know. But but the younger one, no, he totally, like I said, when he got into high school and they had a Pro Tools class um, to learn the Pro Tools, logic, songwriting, all of these different things, he jumped totally into it. That's got to be intimidating for his teacher. <laughs> well, here's here's <laughs> the funny. Like, uh -oh. Well, you know, but here's the funny thing. So so I went to the the first back to school night. And I remember, and I met the teacher and she said, um, uh, she said, oh, she said, oh, you're Max's dad. Oh, he's doing so well in the class. And, you know, he's, he's, he's like straight A, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I said, oh, he better be. And she kind of looked at me kind of quizzical, you know, and, and whatever. So then I think her husband told, said, you know, whose dad, son yeah, yeah. that is, that's Jimmy Jam. <laughs> And she was like, oh, my God. No, I had no idea. And it's like, no, he expects his son to be good. And she had my older boy, too. That's the funny thing. Oh, she funny. had Tyler, oh, really? Tyler, my older son. She had him, too. So that, that was really funny. And my daughter, interestingly enough, um, she was doing plays and musicals and stuff when she was young. She was like 10, 11 years old. She was always the youngest one in the, in the, in the group. And uh, when Andrea Bocelli was doing a Christmas album with David Foster... Uh, they needed a kids' choir to put something together. And so the girl who they hired to get the kids' choir was her theater teacher, right? Huh. So my daughter got to sing uh, with David Foster. And I remember I showed up at the studio and he said, hey, Jam, what's going on? Whatever, whatever. And I said, oh, it's my daughter right there. And she said, he said, oh, my God, she sings? I said, yeah, sort of. I said, she's more of a little actress. But yeah, she says, you know. Anyway, so that's cool. She ended up doing some of the tour with Andrea Bocelli. She ended up doing the, uh, when they did the big show at uh, Kodak Theater, I guess it was, or, or wherever, she did all of that stuff. And yeah. it was like amazing. But she didn't have the passion to do music, so she models. And she's doing great. And she goes, she's going to uh, uh, the Fashion Institute because she wants to have her own line of clothes and, and learn that side of it. But she does New York Fashion Week every year, or the, or the two of them she does every year, and She's walked for everybody. She just uh, did a Maybelline thing the other day. She's totally into it. And she, so the music thing, she loves the music, but never wanted but to do the music. Yeah. And my, my, I remember my wife saying, you know, you should take Bella to the studio and whatever. And I said, 
Stella will come to the studio when she wants to come to the studio. Just like the boys are like, take me to the gym so I can practice basketball. Right. You know, or Max is like, dad, are you at the studio? Can I come to the studio? That's how you know what it is that people really want to do. Yeah. And so you try to make that happen. Her thing was, I want a model. I don't even want to, I don't want to act. I don't want to, she got it with an agent that was trying to get her in commercials and trying to do one. She said, I don't want to do that. She said, I just want to, I want to walk the runways and I want to do it. And now that's exactly what she's doing as an 18 year old, but going to school. So I think, you know, when you apply the hours, I think it's a good, just overall, in my opinion, apply the hours to something you really love, something you're passionate about. And if you have the work ethic and you have talent, um, either to do it or to observe people that do it and maybe help them. Maybe you're a manager or maybe you have a, an analytical mind and you're a, uh, uh, you know, like a, people have psychologists and they have, I mean, people, that's a true thing uh, that people have. Um, or maybe you're the booking agent. Maybe you're the guy that recognizes the talent and can figure out how to help them get from A to B or to C to do or whatever that is. But I would say go for the passion. And if it doesn't work, you can always, you know, not that it's easy, but you can find a job or you can find something. I knew when you asked me earlier about, did I know I wanted to do music? I knew I had a talent in music. I thought I could write songs pretty well. When I met Terry, I found somebody with the same desire, work ethic, um, but more than that, just kind of the same morals, the same respect level, uh, the do unto others formula, which I think is so important. He had all of those things. And while we initially clashed, and it wasn't about writing songs together, it was about watching him and how competitive he was and how his band kicked my band's ass and how the next time I'm going to come back and kick his band's ass. So there was a mutual respect that was gained um, in, in that sense. So I, I feel like the hours that we put in, we're still putting those hours in. And the funny thing is you don't really, you don't really lose those hours because you're still learning. Yeah. The difference is, like I said earlier, you can't teach experience. And what we have is experience. So when we talk to people and try to guide people um, or give them a piece of advice or whatever that is, we're very open about it. Um, what's the, the saying is, uh, the, what is the rising tide raises all boats? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's important because I think there's sometimes there's a feeling like if you turn someone else on to something, like somehow that's going to detract from you. And I don't think that's the case. It hasn't been the case with us. We've watched people who we've, we had an engineer who was a food runner, but he was so good at food running. We knew he had the detail. And what we found out later on when he would work at our studio, he would never watch TV. He'd always be reading. And we never knew, what are you, the heck are you reading? And then one day I came to the studio and I needed, um, I needed to get a keyboard to do something and I couldn't figure it out. And I said, man, I can't figure this keyboard out, whatever, whatever. And he said, oh, which one is it? And I told him which one it was. And he said, oh, I think I know how to do that. And I said, oh, okay. So he went and moved some stuff around, got I'll it to work. He was reading the manuals. He was, he was reading the manuals. Wow. He Talk read every manual. Tape machines. That's what it is. And You're sitting you in a studio. Oh, he, he became our, um, uh, our, assistant, our assistant engineer. 
He started doing all of our work tapes for us. He did some mixes for us. He eventually got into doing, um, uh, like when, um, not house, what was it called? Acid house. I'm trying to think of the, uh, the genre of music at that point in time that was the really super fast sped up drums. He got really into that yeah. and he started doing mixtapes for people. And now he works at a company. He was involved with the last uh, couple Super Bowls, if I'm not mistaken, doing lighting and doing different, uh, you know, things with this company. It's such a great story. I, I had somebody on the show the other day who who I had worked with 20 years ago, and now he's the creator of a show that's coming to the end of a six season run. And I said to him at some point in the in the interview, I said, uh, I said, yeah, when we, there was a little period there, weren't you like making wedding videos or something? He said, no, it wasn't wedding videos, but it was corporate videos. Yes. And he said he went around and he, and he you know, he would interview all these people. He's like, I interviewed maybe hundreds of people mm-hmm. for this job that was, he said, it, you know, it, it paid the rent and everything, yeah. but whatever. It turns out... <laughs> One of the people he met was uh, an expert in pandemic flus, and the pilot for the show that he created that is just about to end now was all about pandemic flus. And mm. he brought that person back. It was maybe 12 or 15 years later. Yep. And and it just, I, you know, I kind of do these takeaways at the end of each episode, and I, and I was just saying to people listening, like, it's not what you're doing. Mm-hmm. It's it's how you're approaching it. Mm-hmm. Like that guy Very is true. is sitting there and and anybody else is, you know, maybe texting on their phone or whatever yeah. and then you say something's wrong and that that's an opportunity. They didn't even realize that opportunity went past them. It just went past. But this guy has a career because of it. It's incredible it's, to me. It's it's interesting how it works because like I say, I mean, he's a guy literally in front of his desk was a TV and he never turned it on, but he was always reading. And then when he made the food runs, the food runs were perfect. And I was telling my son, Max, because he wants to intern somewhere. He wants to go to school, school somewhere, but he wants to intern. And I said, interning is the greatest thing because I said, it'll tell you everything you want to know about a person. And um, uh, I remember that whenever he would come back, it would always be, and, and you think about the hours that people spend in the studio and you spend long hours. And you order food, and the thing you want is you want the food right. You want the order right. You want the the condiments that go with the food. You want forks and spoons and all the things. Somebody should outthink you because you're not there to do that. But that's such an important thing. Um, and check the order to, before you leave and all of those things. But those are the characteristics in life that are good and are really good for engineers. But because it is such a detail-orientated, you know, business, and you can't make a mistake. If you make a mistake, by the way, there's a – we're sitting in, uh, by the way, my partner Terry's office, so you don't see this. But there's a tape up there that from Terry that someone is – an engineer is apologizing for basically messing up a project, and what it was, was there were some, I won't say the singer's name, but a very prominent singer that passed away a, a few be, uh, years back, um, that we never could recover those vocals. And it was an engineering mistake. And he's apologizing in hopes he didn't cause damage and whatever. Well, he did. And you don't want to be in that position, but he's the guy that gets you uh, onion rings instead of fries. Okay, it's the same habits that you have, 
kind of go into everything you do. Go to work. And I hope my son, well, I know he will intern because it's just, there's nothing like being in the work environment. And just the way you, you can become a star. If you're in the environment that you like and you're doing something or you're sensitivity towards something or your instincts towards something are just above and beyond the people that are there and you can show that in some way you will get plucked i do feel that way and in a job like engineering where you really need to be detailed you really need to have your ego aside you're not trying to tell people what to do we had an we had an engineer just giving one other example, we had also had an engineer uh, back at flight time in Minneapolis at the same time as uh, Xavier, Xavier uh, or X-Man as we called him. He was the guy that was the star. But we also had a guy that knew a whole lot, very smart. But he was not shy about sharing his, uh, whether a smartness or his opinion with people. And I remember we had this uh, engineer come in from New York, um, and I can't remember, his name is slipping my mind now, but very prominent engineer, had worked on, at the time, uh, Jodeci, uh, Mary J. Blige, a whole bunch of records. And he wanted to come in and do, he actually tried to rent Paisley Park, but Paisley Park at that point in time, Prince had kind of shut it down to outside stuff. I guess he was working on whatever he's working on at the time. And I remember we put him in with the engineer. And I remember after the first day, he said, do you guys have another engineer? And we were like, sure. What's the problem? And he said, this dude, um, your your guy, is he's good. He knows what he's doing. But he's like, I asked him to, you know, route, a, you know, a limiter and a de-esser and a whatever. And he looked at me and he said, really, you want him in that order? Or wouldn't you put the compressor before the something and whatever, whatever. And he said, I looked at him. He said, nobody's ever said that to me in his life, in, in my life. He said, and he said, it's not the, it, it, about my ego, but I do things a certain way and I just want them done. And that's kind of what he's there to do. And I said, you're absolutely right. And the next day we, get, we gave him X-Man and he was happy the whole rest of the time. <laughs> and so sometimes... It's not enough to be smart. It's, not, it's, it, it's what you know for sure. But it's also how you get it across, and you have to be able to read situations. And some people are very welcoming of suggestions and that, but you have to, you have to figure that out. Steve Hodge, who I mentioned earlier as our, as our engineer, and I'm telling you our engineer for Scream and, and all the Janet records we did, um... Steve was the best at that. He was the most calm, uh, low demeanor. He would just do what it was. And after he got to know you, because after we got to know him, he said to us, I'm going to come up and show you guys how to record. (laughs) And we did the Human League album was the next album we did after that, which was I thought was impeccably recorded. So um, I just think it's important to also, it's, it's good to know stuff, but there is a... A certain amount of, um, I don't know, temperament, I guess. Or humility, maybe. Humility, yes. All, all of that. That's, that's very important. And so one of the things as an engineer, as an engineer, if your role is to try to execute what the producer's trying to do and try to make it sound the best it sounds and all of that, 
Um, if you're also a producer, then if when you're producing, do what the heck you want to do and figure it out. But you will learn. The great thing is if you just shut up, you will learn from other producers different ways of going about things. Like, you know, I, ooh, I never thought of doing it like that and not saying that's wrong, but just going, I never thought to do it like that. And then you do it and then you hear it back and it sounds amazing and you go, wow, now I learned something that I can use for my thing. So it's, it's important. Listening is, is really important and just kind of absorbing uh, the energy of the room, the way people are. Some people you can joke with, some people don't want to be joked with. I mean, you know, it's, it's like, you know, it's like Uber drivers. It's like some Uber drivers want to talk your head off. And I'm like, I, I just will like, like if I just want to relax, I'll just go, if you don't mind, I'm just, I'm just going to relax. I said, you can put on whatever music you want to, but I'm just going to relax back here. I'm tired or whatever. And you just, you know, but some yeah. people can read it. Some yep. people just can kind of read. Same thing with when you're getting your haircut. I mean, I, that's like, that's a big deciding factor. If yes. someone's like, oh, you know, I like someone who, who I go to a guy right now who it's, if, if I want to talk, he'll talk. Yes. If I'm like not very talkative that day. Nothing. What do you say? Read the room. Yeah, read the room. <laughs> read the exactly. room. And I'm just thinking, as you're saying it, I I'd like to think that's a quality that I have, and yet, you know, I'm I'm as I hear these things that rifle through my memory, and I I can think of some times when I, you know, whether it's overstepped my boundaries or or um, you just maybe you know it's like yeah. not knowing exactly you know you want to break out of the role a little bit sometimes but you, but it's like know your role know what you're I like what you said it's like that that's the engineer's job and that point was to carry out the orders yeah. not to and and at a certain point I mean listen when you get a relationship with somebody I mean this is the first day first day you really shouldn't be saying yeah. anything yeah. you you should be reading the room reading the person figuring out what it is they're trying to get all of that is really, to me, important. And I think that a lot of times people that are bummed out because something's not working for them or, or whatever, who tend to blame another person need to look in the mirror. And and that is a like, what did I do wrong or what could I have done differently? I think that if you can make that your first instinct it doesn't may not change the situation but i just think as a rule that's that's a that's just the right thing to do yeah you know and i think in most situations people always ask you know do terry and i because i always say terry and i have never had an argument and we've never had an argument we've disagreed on things okay but an argument is where you're, you have dug in on a side and you're not listening to what the other person is saying. Because if you're listening to what the other person is saying, you have a disagreement and then you're having a discussion about the disagreement. And the goal is not to be right. It's to find the right way. Okay. So it could be a song we're doing and I'm like, Oh, that could be slower or that could be faster or whatever. And well, what do you think, Jim? Oh, maybe he's a little slower. Yeah. Okay. How's that feel? You know, no, maybe, no, maybe you're right. Maybe it could be a little faster, you know, whatever. But that's, a, it's a disagreement, but it's just in the working pattern and, and it's a discussion. But at the end of the day, it doesn't matter 
who takes credit for it. And once that's out of it, when, when Terry and I did our, our agreement was a handshake agreement. We shook hands. We said 50-50 on everything we do. Terry could do a whole song by himself, which he's done a lot of them. It's still 50% of my song. Once you get that part of it out of the way, and we've told that to people, and we've said that probably won't work for you, quite honestly. But if you get over the minutia of, well, that was my title. Well, that was my melody. Well, that was my lyric. Or that was my, you know, I found the project. Doesn't matter. So now instead of spending time harping over 2% of this and that word and whatever, you're now spending that time making the best product, making your 50% the best 50% it can possibly be, which sometimes means you're really involved. And sometimes it means you step the hell away from it and let the person who's really got it do it until they maybe ask your opinion and say, what do you think about this? Or let me play this for you. What do you, what do you think? Or what would you change or that. Yeah. It's, it's really, how could I be of service? How can in I a, be in of a service? way? How, how can I be exactly of service? It and it's two people doing that. And it, whether it's a marriage or it's, or it's a, a work relationship like this, um, two groups. I mean, if you think about politics, it's, yeah. it's a, how could I be of service and, and remove yes. my ego and go. And then also you talked about basically taking a hundred percent of the responsibility instead of saying, well, you did this. It's like, even, even if you, yeah, even if the person did screw up, it's still looking at it and going, well, I had a hand in it. I was here. Yeah. And so what, what could I do? It was interesting because there was a period of time. Um, there'd been certain, certain groups we'd, we'd worked with. I mean, we'd, we've had a pretty good batting average, but there's been certain groups we've worked with where the project didn't necessarily sell that well or, or whatever. And you realize that, you know, you want to be satisfied with it when it leaves the studio, because really it's at that point, it's out of your control. We once had a, um, uh, a person, I'll just leave it at, at, as, as a person who, um, took all of our records off of their stations. They had, I think probably 20 stations at the time. And it was over, um, uh, their husband or boyfriend at the time we were trying to use for a soundtrack for something. And we recorded the songs and the director decided he didn't want to use them. So in our minds, we were like, okay. And we kind of were like, we told the dude, uh, the director says he's not feeling these. He doesn't want to use these, but we think they're good. Let's us figure out what we can use them for. Or, you know, you never know. He may change his mind. Well, anyway, he told his wife, his wife said, I'm taking them off of all the stations, all my stations. Because she had, I think she had called us, and then we didn't get right back to her or whatever. It was like one of those, oh, she called, she called. Okay, we'll get back to her. We didn't get back to her. Next thing we knew, we were getting calls from, like, all the promotion men from all the records we had out. From Janet, which was, you know, A&M, I think, at the time, and, you know, Columbia, or, uh, Epic, which, you know, SOS was on. And then, so, like, literally. And we were like, I don't know. And we called her back and she said, I just was trying to get your attention. And I said, well, you got our attention. I said, why hurt the other artists to get our attention? I mean, I said, I'm not sure. I mean, you got our attention if that was your point, but I don't know why the other artists should suffer. Their record should suffer. This This is a matter between us and your husband and you. 
and, and the director and whatever we need to work that out, we need to do that. And it was an inter- it was a very, once again, that was a, you know, it could have been a catastrophe, but it wasn't and nobody ultimately suffered. But that was very interesting that someone would think that way. And that, you know, it's kind of like, you know, I'm going to blow up the whole block. I'm going to try to get one person, but I'm just going to blow up the whole block to do it. And I just think that kind of thinking is is so wrong. And we're, you know, friends with this person to this day. Um, We actually ended up using, I think, one of the songs for some other project. And, you know, but it's just like you... That's not how things work. And it's the director of the movie. We're not the boss of that. He picks the music. But we're happy to, you know, get your husband in here because he's good at what he does. And we think he actually has some songs that will work. And let's get it in there. So that was a case where, but it's a learning experience. But we learned that, yeah, people can can do that. But it's just, it's the negativity of that and, and the is just so wrong. And we just try to not stay ever in that place. Yeah. It's like move on from that. That's that's not helping a situation at all. That's great. Well, listen, I I uh as you could probably tell, I could sit here the whole day. I feel <laughs> like and we're we're approaching 2 hours here. Um and uh you are a busy man. You got a, a studio <laughs> to run. So I I'm going to let you go. You know, I it's this is up to you. I always have I've had this this little pop quiz I do sure. for people, but I feel like you've almost answered it. I'll give them to you. Okay. The the the, uh, the first one is uh, finish this sentence. The the word no actually means what? <laughs> I think the word no means no. But I think you find a different way to approach it. It's like you know when you ask a question a certain way and get a no. I think there's other questions you can ask that you may get a maybe and you may get a, "Mm, let me think about that. Um, And as soon as you do that, now you've eliminated the no, because I I take a no as a no. If somebody says no, it's like, cool. But then if I say after the no, if I say, thanks for getting back to me, I appreciate it. I'm going to send you a little music uh, just, I think it'll make your day brighter or whatever, whatever. And I know we'll talk in the future and whatever that is. Yeah. So I think the, the important thing is I take a no as a no. I don't, I'm not going to fight back on you. If no is what your decision is, that's fine. But maybe I'm going to make you look at it in a different way and rectify it differently in your, in your mind. If I can yeah. do that, I'm doing, I'm, d- I'm doing that <laughs> right now with a couple of people that were not coming to the show tonight that now are coming. They gave me a no. Yeah, And I sent them some music and I said, okay, cool. I appreciate it. I'll let you know when the next one is. And then they're like, oh, I love this. Okay. What put me down? You know, yeah, that yeah. kind of thing. So he's, oh, yeah. I, had a, I had another guest say, I, I love the way she said, she said, uh, it's a no, but there's a comma, yes. you know, it's yeah. just like, it's that's a good way like, to put it's it. It's like, it's not just like a period. It's not done. Yeah. There's still always like, that's a, a good way. You're that's alive a good, still. You're yeah. alive. Yeah. You yeah. Is it a, is it a no with a period or a no with a comma? Yeah, that's, that's it's fun. a way to look at it. That's a, that's a great. That's a great way to look at it. I, yeah. I love that. I, I like, it's the same same kind of thought. I think that you had in and much then, in much less words. See, that's, <laughs> and my problem is I talk in paragraphs. Oh, listen, and, trust me. Ask my <laughs> wife. I talk a lot. <laughs> ask anybody in my life. Um, <laughs> then the other is that the first words that come to your mind right now that could be a, a book title, a song title, lyrics, a quote from a, a movie, or or a, a quote from a speech. Anything that pops in your mind right now. 
Wow. That's a that's a really well, that's why I say right now, you don't have to get, be so precious. It's not like it's your favorite thing. I, I hate those questions. You know, what's your favorite? You know what? I wish you would ask me that about nine o'clock this morning. I had so many, <laughs> I had so many thoughts running, running through my head about, uh, about different. Hey, you giving me gold things. today. You could say pass if you want, you know? Yeah. I'll pass. I, 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 there's nothing that comes to mind that's really, you know. That's really significant to me right now. Like I, I, I'm so, and it sounds cliche. I'm so in the moment, you know, just I'm, I'm I enjoyed speaking to you. Um, I'm enjoying life right now. I'm, you know, I went through a few little, uh, you know, minor little medical things. I call them old man things. They're just things you don't <laughs> think about when you're younger. And when you get a little older, things, you know, crop up, creep up on you. But um, I'm just in a, such an appreciative space right now, um, of particularly of Terry Lewis. I mean, the people, uh, uh, my wife and my family, who, you know, pe- people are always around you. and But you really see people when you're having problems. It's who are the people that are around you um, and who are there for you. And... I got that clarity that I already knew, but I really saw it over maybe the last couple of months. And that's been so enlightening to me, you know? Um, so that totally is not your, <laughs> not that's your right. question, I'll take it. I'll but take that's, it. but that's just how I'm feeling right now. And, you know, you're, this is the first interview I've done in, in probably a couple of, couple of months. And I like the, the subject and the substance and the fact that, you know, it's about trying to enlighten people's lives and maybe, you know, they listen, obviously we cut it down. So it's not two hours, but you, somebody hears one little takeaway from it and, and it makes something that's not making sense in their life make sense. Then we've really done what is the great thing we can do, which is make people's lives better in some way or just do it. And, and the funny thing is a lot of times people, I, I, I will remember something. I won't remember who told me, but there'll be some sort of thing, but the no with the, with the period or the comma is brilliant Yeah, because I never would have thought of it like that, but that is exactly what it is. So I came away from this today and I've learned stuff Hopefully other people have learned stuff and maybe it's one little nugget or whatever it is, but I love the show. I love what you're doing. I think you have to put the work effort in and, and the work, you have to have the work ethic. You have to put it in. You can outwork anybody. I no, forget the talent level, um, but you have to have passion and you also have to, you can't do it alone. I'm lucky. I have a partner for, I've known Terry for I think 48 years or something like that now. And I have no desire to live life or do music uh, without him in my life. Uh, I've been married to my wife for 25 years. We've known each other almost 30 years. I have no desire to do things without my wife, without my family, without my kids. So um, I just feel so blessed. And so um, it's just I, I feel good to be here right now. I just I'm very appreciative of what it is. And a lot of things that happen, a lot of circumstances in life and a lot of no's that happen and all that stuff 
you gotta it's tough it sounds cliche but you got to get through it the the song that's our favorite song that we've ever written and terry agrees with this is a song we did called optimistic by the sounds of blackness and the reason is to me at its finest music is is divine it's the one thing that can touch us internally whether we understand the language of it or we you know understand how it was made or any of that music is the one thing that can do that and so to be given that gift of being able to communicate through music is the greatest thing ever and to have that song be a song that changed people's lives to this day people and and by the way it was a number one record and won a grammy (laughs) but that is so secondary to the impact it had on people's lives and last year um uh, Common and uh, some other people remade the song um, and re-put it out. And it had that same effect on people. And that's what, when I talk to them, they always say, oh my God, I didn't, we didn't realize the effect that the lyrics were going to have on people, you know? But that's the great thing about what we do is every once in a while, besides having a hit, you come up with something that really hits people and really, you know, does that communication that only music can really do. And I just feel like so blessed to to be able to do it. Well, I'm, uh, I'm, I did get you, see, I got you to talk about a song. You got to, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, I, I'm, I'm so grateful to have you sit down with me. I, I, and, and to be so open and honest, I really appreciate it. I love that you love the show and, um, yeah, show's great. And, and I'm, I'm so grateful to have you guys do the work that you do because I, I think I'm affected and everybody listening is affected by your work Beyond, we don't we don't even maybe realize all of the the songs that you've had a hand in. So thank you for for sitting down with me. I really appreciate Absolutely. it. Absolutely, my pleasure. Okay, guys, Jimmy Jam. How about that guy? I hope I didn't build it up too much beforehand. I don't know how I could have. He just that guy really, man. I'm I'm blown away. Um, okay, so I always whittle this down to three takeaways, and. Uh, I couldn't do it. So I have 10 for you. So I will rifle through them. Number one, relationships. Proximity equals power. That's a thing that Tony Robbins always says. And I feel like Jimmy exemplified that when he tells the story toward the beginning about his, how they went, they, they ended up finding all these people that they worked with for the rest of their career from going to a charity basketball game. Now they worked their butts off and that is apparent, the the passion and the work. But I also thought it was interesting. He talks so much about relationships. His relationship with Terry is incredible. And then all of their relationships with everybody that they worked with over and over again, it was like a family. Number two, self-worth. Clarence Avant said, uh, now about your fee. And they said, oh, Clarence, you know, uh, we can cut it down. And he said, cut it down. You're not asking for enough which, you know, I think a lot of people think about that, that, you know, do you have, do you give yourself enough? Do you, do you count yourself for enough? So self-worth was another one. Number three, being a class act, Clarence Avon, again, he never took a dime, total gentleman. His power came from the service that he provided. And, you know, when he started with that first deal with them and he said, what do you need the money for? You got everything you need. And then he broke it all down ahead of time, the taxes, the lawyers, the time, et cetera. And he prevented them from taking a bad deal. And that was the beginning of this incredible uh, relationship that they have. And he really just, he did it. He was a gentleman. And which leads me to number four, the power of a mentor. And Clarence's effect on Jimmy and Terry's career 
the way Jimmy talks about him with such reverence, I mean, they bought him a Rolls Royce and, and he makes it sound like they wouldn't have accomplished a fraction of what they did without his guidance. So the power of a mentor. Number five, don't be ego driven. You know, it's obvious that these guys have confidence. They worked so hard. They're very talented. They have confidence. But it's also the relationship with each other where they deferred to each other's opinion. They made it about the project, about the art, about the song, about the album, more than it was about their own ego. And also, I love that great story about the engineer who was talented, but he didn't read the room so well and his ego got in his way. And that is just a, a great reminder don't let your ego get in the way. Don't be ego driven. Number six, be yourself, be an original. Terry Lewis, when he was, they said he was reprogramming Usher so that he wasn't singing that song the way he'd heard a demo singer sing it. And he said, pretend you're hearing it for the first time. How would you sing it like yourself, like Usher? Great lesson for anybody, any actors out there listening. I mean, be yourself. You're going to get cast when you are yourself, not when you're trying to be what you think they want you to be. Number seven, the work ethic of Prince and Michael Jackson. He said, not only were they the most talented guys in the room, but they were also the hardest workers. And that's what made them legends. Number eight, the story of getting stuck in a snowstorm and fired by Prince. While it was a major setback, it bonded Jimmy and Terry and it set them on a new path uh, together. And it, it, they didn't know that's how the story was going to go. It didn't go the way they wanted to in the moment, but that literally led to their entire, the rest of their career. And it was this huge catastrophe at the time. Number nine, um, they are still told no to this day and it never ends. Great lesson for the rest of us thinking that we may someday graduate, but that's not the case. Look at these guys, look how much they've done. And he's saying they're still told no to this day. Number 10, on passion and partnership in business. He says, apply the hours to something you really love, something you're passionate about. And if you have a certain amount of talent and you keep putting in the time, Jimmy said, you can become a star. You will get plucked eventually. He said, I do feel that way. Okay, so that is all we have for this week. I really, if you like this one, I think you should check out my conversation with songwriter Chip Taylor or the interview that convinced Jimmy he should do this show, my conversation with writer, director, actor, producer Mark Duplass, who figured out how to beat the Hollywood system and create his own mini empire with his brother Jay. Thank you all for being here again. I love the loyalty, love the community that's being built, really love your feedback and that you've been so kind to share. If you haven't shared, please, please do. You can text it, email it, yell at strangers in parking lots about 10,000 no's. Tell your friends, whatever you want to do. Anyway, you can get the word out. We love it. Um, all right. Have a great week. We'll see you next week. We've got an ex-Cornell lacrosse player turned restaurateur, turned best-selling author and motivational speaker, John Gordon, incredible human being. Uh, we've become friends since our interview. And um, be on the lookout for my new mini episodes, Monday Morsels. All right. Have a great week. 